Welcome to this latest episode of the Comeback Podcast. My guest today is Simon Kelly. Simon is initially from the UK, currently in Vietnam, and we're here today to talk about traveling, perhaps jiu-jitsu, and a bit more. I'm excited for this chat. Simon, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me around. Yeah, it's a pleasure, man. You said first ever podcast? First ever one, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Do you so. have any favorites that you listen to? Uh, Joe Rogan's a yes. favorite. Yeah, I got, in, I got onto him about eight years ago and I can remember the first time I started listening to a podcast and I just went from listening to one to to, to listening to them all the time and uh, one after the other there's a new guy as well and um, well he's been around for a while it's called the true Geordie yes he's brilliant he's brilliant yeah, he's, yeah. He, and and there's another guy that I've just started listening to called uh, Sean Atwood Sean Atwood yeah yeah he was got an interesting story but he interviews loads of criminals and he, he spent a lot of time in jail he was a kingpin for um he got into the he got into the rave scene he's just a business guy but the way he talks and the way the people he has on yeah interesting to see that perspective definitely like, like we've just been chatting off air about you can go one of two ways based on your experience yeah. and it sounds like this sean atwood has had his difficulties and been in jail but used it to is a positive manner when he came out to interview people and get a different perspective. Yeah, yeah, he's got a really cool story. Really cool story. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and he survived. Um, he survived prison in uh, South America. So yeah, he's, he, he, <laughs> his, his story is pretty crazy. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But regarding your story, um, we were just chatting briefly. I thought you were from Leeds. You're from the Lake District. Yeah, yeah. Lake Can you District. tell me what it's like growing up in the Lake District? Lake It was a small town. Yeah, twenty thousand people. So, in in my town, in the Lake the Lake District, District's beautiful. It's um, it's a World Heritage, so it got labelled a World Heritage in uh, two thousand and seventeen. Like um, Great Wall of China, Taj Mahal, and it didn't. It, it's it's always been booming with tourism, but since the COVID happened, it's uh, really booming at the minute because people can't leave the country. Yeah, of course. And uh, they're coming up to the lakes and they want to escape the city and things like that. But yeah, what was it like growing up? Uh, twenty, twenty-five thousand people in my town. Everybody knows everybody. You you go to the supermarket and people. I would I worked there as an electrician. Um, I had a construction company. And yeah, um, when you go around to people's houses, you'd be fixing a light or a socket for them, and then after you finish the job, they would tell you, "Oh, I know, I know your dad. I know your mum. Uh, you know, they would tell you about your family history. They would. It's quite, it's quite intimate." Mm. At the same time, it's quite suffocating, um, because there's, it's a, it's a small town, and it's nice to get out of that and see a different perspective in life. Yeah. The other morning, um, we went to jujitsu, and I was looking back. We took a uh, team photo, and I was looking at the team photo, and we had a a guy from Korea there, a guy from Vietnam, a guy from New Zealand, a guy from Tajikistan, and um, a, a Brit, and there was an American there. And I looked at the team four and I thought, that's brilliant because you're getting all these different perspectives from yeah. life. Yeah, I've thought about that from Vietnam as well. I live with a guy from Egypt, a, guy, a girl from Hungary. Brilliant. I've lived with French, Italian, Spanish. I know a guy from Bermuda, Singapore. It's just this hybrid of nationalities altogether. And I don't think you can learn about, I think, life any other way than connecting with people from so many different areas because mm. the lessons you get are just astonishing. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. it definitely is, and it's the same with uh, going to different countries. Yeah, before Vietnam, I was travelling from one country to the next country. Uh, I was doing a month at a time. I always tried to do about four weeks. Obviously, Thailand's a bit of a, a base, 
So I spent a lot a lot more time in Thailand. I would go back, I would revisit certain parts and maybe live in Chiang Mai for a month or maybe live down the south and try and explore that. But before Vietnam, I never really immersed myself in the culture too much until Vietnam. Right, okay. And I think we will come back to Vietnam. Yeah. But if you don't mind me going back to the start in the Lake District, would it be common for someone from that pl place to branch out and travel the world like you have done? No, no, not at all. Um, yeah, not at all, really. So where our area is 25,000 people in the town. Luckily enough, we have a, a nuclear power plant in the area. I think that employs about fifteen to 20,000 people. So you can imagine everyone around our town. We've got a lot of different towns around us. Our biggest city is uh, Carlisle, which is maybe an hour, an hour away in the car. Mm. So we've got, we've got the nuclear power plant, and that's the... If you if you start working there, that's you you set you know you're working for the government. You've got a regular income. The the great thing is to put you on every course that you want to go on. They're very safety conscious. You know, like when I got to twenty one, uh, I, I finally got into Sellafield. I was working on uh, I was working as an electrician. I was working uh, it was house bashing. So we were going into we had a contract with the council. We were going from one house to the next house, just rewiring every four days. And uh, I finally got on to Sellafield, my money went up, um, I had job security, and yeah, I went, I, I, I loved it at first, I loved it at first, and then I got about three years into it, and I just knew something didn't, something didn't feel right, um, I was seeing guys that had been down there for 40 years, and everything was a lot slower, it was like a different pace, mm. a different pace, so. Yeah, I see, and until that point, had you travelled before, say? away with family or friends or uh, family holidays uh, I think I went to an all-inclusive to Turkey and spent a week in a hotel you know never never broke the barrier really yeah and what yeah. was that moment then when you decided to break the barrier how old were you and do you remember where you went I think I was about 22 just turned 22 and um, I was in a uh, I was in a relationship with a girl at the time I would first love I'd met her and um yeah, and uh, what happened was my granddad got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, died six weeks later. Uh, the, the girl I was with at the time, she was a bit older than me, she was 12 years older than me. Um, and I just, everything turned upside down within a couple of weeks. And I can remember at that time, the whole, I, I started an analysing everything. So I was a bit robotic before that. I was, I'd done the right thing. I got my, I got my um, qualifications and, got a job, got a house, I was I was on the right path and yeah I got to the point where that happened and it completely spun me out, mm. completely. I had about a year of trying different things, I started, um, I went to a college, I was, I, I was, uh, went to be a tutor, after a while I got bored with that and then I went back down to Sellafield, the nuclear power plant, I rang my old boss and I said it's not working out for me as a tutor here, he came and met me, he came and met me at a restaurant, we had a cup of coffee and uh, he said, don't worry, you're back in, we'll get you back in. So Sellafield, the nuclear power plant, it's, you've got to be um, security vetted. So it can take anywhere between three months and 12 months to get, to get on site. And luckily enough, I just, I just came off site and I got back on pretty easy. And uh, it's called a P4 clearance. And you go through and they, they vet you, they check your background, they make sure you're not, uh, you've got no terrorism or anything like that. Got back on site and I started working with the guys again and um, 
I just looked at everyone and everyone was doing the same thing and I left within two weeks Yeah. and I was just like right this isn't for me yeah. you know I knew instantly I know the feeling when yeah. you see everyone that you perhaps grew up with and thought if I stay in this model it's great for some people mm -hmm. some people might enjoy it but it will be the same thing week on week month mm. on month and I yeah. could look back in five to ten years and think whoa I've not done anything different no. and that was a scary realization yeah it really is it really is especially when you start craving something more and when you have a sudden death in your family like my granddad was my role model and you know i seen how destructive it was to the family and it was like we'd never lost anyone before yeah. before that no, no, as grown up i can't remember a time where we'd lost someone close to us it was a big shock to the family and seeing how it was um what what happened is i started I came in and started, my parents had a restaurant at the time and had a few restaurants and my granddad helped build them up and everything like that and I came in to initially start working with them and build the family business. I was sick of, I was sick of uh, Sellafield and one of the, one of the points during that I was working with the council and we were doing a, we were doing a contract which was Meals on Wheels so you deliver meals to old people and old folks homes and things like this and and we had volunteers working for us and that was one of the contracts for the job and I can remember going round all the old folks homes and there was people 50, 60 year old sitting in where they'd buy apartments and they'd all live there and every morning they'd wake up, they'd have breakfast, they'd have lunch together they'd, and there was about 100 people in these old folks homes so I was going and t speaking to them and everything like that and I was thinking what is life all about? Like, how short is this? I mean, a few years before, I'd lost my granddad, and uh, then I'm in these old folks' homes, and there's 55-year-old people in there, and I'm thinking, I'm 24 at this point. This is probably half. I, I thought, right, I've got to I've got to really go for it. Yeah, and when you decided that, where was the first place you went to? Well, I didn't decide it initially. I didn't really realise. So I went to Thailand on a holiday, three-week holiday. I actually done... This is how crazy it was. I went to Cambodia... Went to Phnom Penh, Siam Reap, Ho Chi Minh City. Oh no, no, I went to Thailand first. Did I go to Thailand first? Yeah, I think I think I think I went to Thailand first. I spent um, two or three weeks in Thailand travelling around. Came back. I had that bug straight away. I just knew that um, that I'm seeing people without money on the side of the road smiling. And in the UK, I always thought, oh, you need to be successful, you need to make money, you need to have materialistic stuff. So I came back and I knew something, I knew, like, straight away. Yeah, you, you fancied living abroad. Yeah, yeah, and then I went back and I, I done a three-week uh, holiday in, yeah, Siam Reap, Phnom Penh, then I went down to Ho Chi Minh City, Hai An, and then Hanoi, within three weeks. So I, I flew seven times in three yeah. weeks. And it was far too much. I knew straight away because I'd never, I'd never really done a a, a three week holiday before. Getting three weeks away from work was just, you know, you normally go for seven days and spend the time in a hotel. But I was trying to maximise everything and go to all the best places and see everything. And I thought I need more time to do this, so I went back home, decided to save up as much money as I could. And by this point, I'm 27. I went travelling for a year that time. Yeah. Right, okay. And where did that year take you? The first five months we were travelling through Thailand, Malaysia, um, all around um, like Cambodia, just the, the usual, the usual uh, expat areas. Sure. And then I had a visa, I had a working visa to uh, live in Australia. 
so I went to Australia and uh, I was there two weeks and I was like, no, no, this isn't for me. Um, I don't, the lifestyle was completely different. I'd just spent uh, a, a month on a motorbike going up from Ho Chi Minh City up to Hanoi and it was craziest ex experience. In, yeah. What was know. that month like? Because I've considered doing similar. Well, yeah, it was brilliant. It was really cool. So you meet so many people along the way and uh, you have these constant experiences where you've got to get over a challenge. So, for instance, I went, I, uh, I lost my bike key. My bike key came out, so I got to the petrol station. I had no bike key, and uh, one of the expats came and helped me. Another guy that on a motorbike, he pushed me all the way to a um, workshop. They carved uh, out of the bike key, they carved a bit of metal, which worked as a key, so I carried on to the next place. And there's just, you're constantly facing with challenges yeah. all the time. I had a great idea of spraying my bike gold, which was fantastic at the time, but every time I'd see a police officer, my Yamaha Nuovo was bright gold, I'll show oh, you a photo damn, of it. Yeah. yeah, it was every single town I went to, I get, kept getting stopped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have to aim a bit? Not too much. The worst one was Moonier. So I came out of Moonier, and I kept, well, the, when I first started off, I'd lost my uh, card to go get out the car park and you know how strictly in Amis like they, they follow the rules yes you know for a lot of things like the very yeah and all about stuff so I went I went I love that yeah <laughs> I went I went into the car park I had the same flip-flops on I was on a gold bike the picture was exactly me but I didn't have my card I'd, I'd put it somewhere and lost it and I didn't realize how I couldn't get my bike out so I ended up bribing the guy to let me out of the car park it was maybe like five or ten dollars uh, okay that was my first first morning. I set off outside the city. Uh, bearing in mind, I'd never really had any challenges in the five months. It was a very, um, very comfortable five months of uh, travelling before that. And then I thought, right, I'm going to submerge myself into different challenges. Got out the city an hour and a half later. Uh, getting out of Ho Chi Minh City was a nightmare. I didn't realise about the bridge crossing that you can get out and it takes you right out of the city. Got lost a few times because I was scared to put my phone onto the motorbike in case someone stole my phone, so I'm listening to it through headphones. Uh, seeing a police officer, left my indicator on, he wanted $200. We talked for about 10 minutes on the side of the road, he ended up letting me go. Uh, ended up somewhere near Moon Air, but it was getting dark at that point. I'm on a Yamaha New Ovo that went about 40, 50 kilometres per hour, and I've got about 2,000 kilometres to go, so I ended up pulling in the night. Uh, staying at a hotel, I could hear loads of commotion. There was fighting upstairs. There was a lady screaming. It was, it was. I was the only foreigner in the town, and I thought, "Oh my God, what am I doing?" There was one point where I woke up the next morning. I thought, "Should I just fly to Australia?" And then I continued. And as I continued, the next stop was Moonair. I came out of Moonair in the morning. First thing I seen when I came around the sand dunes was uh, the police officers. They took me off the bike, they do the usual thing, they take you off the bike, they ask for your blue card, then they ask for your passport, then they ask for your keys, and then it, it goes on, and then it went on for about half an hour, and I was like, listen, how much, you know, what do you want? They start at $100, and then we go negotiating. I drive past the sand dunes, get into the petrol station in Moon Air, and the guy's talking to me while I'm filling petrol up, and I'm a bit shook, shook up by the police at one point. Uh, while I was speaking to the police, he's hitting his hand with a truncheon the whole time, trying to intimidate me and things like this. And a lot of people told me not to come to Vietnam for some reason. Found out that I loved it in the end up, but a lot of people were like, be careful, there's scams and things like this. Yeah, yeah. Found out that's not the case, it's a brilliant country. Yeah. Anyway, as I got to the petrol station, 
they overcharged me for the petrol and and then I thought oh, I'm gonna leave this continued fought through them challenges and then the rest of the trip was amazing you know it's just them initial hurdles yeah and were you by yourself throughout this period? I wanted to do it alone yeah Good. I wanted to do it alone um, there was different groups, different Facebook groups that I could have joined, but I wanted to really push myself out of my comfort zone. Mm. Uh, ended up making it all the way up, and uh, there's a guy called uh, Vietnam Coracle. He'd, he'd mapped out all the way um, where to go up. I didn't find this out until about the third or fourth day. So you're following the routes, and he gives you guidance on anything, everything, and uh, you start staying at all the hostels, and then you start meeting people along the way. One of the things with being on the bike, you don't really meet anyone every time you stay for a coffee or you stay for a banh mi or some food. You're not really you're not really meeting people. You, there's Vietnamese people which is super friendly, and then you don't really get to you don't really get to speak to anyone. So as soon as I found out Vietnam Coracle and it was telling you where where to stay along the way, it was almost like I was doing the bike trip, and then at night time I'd meet all the travellers and get loads of different advice, and then I'd go to the next place. Yeah, sure. But it become really enjoyable. Yeah, and, it sounds it. Yeah, and by the time I got to Hanoi. Uh, I spent oh, 10 days in Hanoi um, just relaxing, sold my bike to, to a guy, stayed in Hanoi, enjoyed the restaurants, enjoyed the lifestyle, met a lot of people that were expats out there that were teaching. Yeah, and then went to Australia, went to Australia, um, stayed there two weeks and I was like, no, nope, this isn't for me, get me back to Asia, yeah. I want to still continue this, uh, this, this experience. This interests me because I do want to move to Australia after this. Why did it not work out for you, do you think? Well, you come from a place where you've... you've Vietnam's a wonderful place. As long as you... As, as soon as I've become too accustomed to the culture and the lifestyle and... With Australia, I found there was a lot of rules. So And it was so far away from my family. It was a 12-hour difference for phone calls and things like that. So it's really hard. You, you're either... You're drinking coffee, is there drinking beer, or it's the opposite way around. It's hard to communicate, mm. and I just like the freedom of being in Asia. I like the freedom of being able to drive the bike and see everything. And also, Australia is very, very expensive. Yeah, to to have a lifestyle. Yeah, you know? so I believe. Yeah. And Vietnam, then as a whole, we touched upon it at the start with the mix of cultures. What is it about Vietnam that makes it so special for you? Do you think? Uh, I would say the Vietnamese people and the the culture. Um, I know it's not like Thailand where it's the... It, 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 once you get to understand the Vietnamese culture, it's a really cool place. And it's also the options. You, whatever you want in Saigon is available. If you want to train Jiu-Jitsu, there's five, ten gyms for Jiu-Jitsu. There's Muay Thai, there's CrossFit, the gyms are insane. You know, the lifestyle is really cool. There's coffee shops, there's good coffee everywhere. You know, the food's brilliant. You can have whatever food you want. You can get it delivered on a grab within yeah. 20 minutes. Yeah, you know? for sure. And so am I right in thinking that you did the Asia traveling, then went to Australia. It didn't quite work out. Then you came to live in Ho Chi Minh City. No, right, no. Okay. So this was about seven months into traveling at the start. I went to Kuala Lumpur to uh, Malaysia. And um, I got into a gym there, it was called, um, I can't remember, it was a really good MMA gym. And I thought, right, I'm going to spend a month and I'm going to live in Kuala Lumpur. And I, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to train, I'm going to meet the locals. And I wanted a base. So I ended up staying in Kuala Lumpur, which was brilliant, fantastic. And I met so many cool people, all the Malaysians were fantastic. And it, it, 
um, Malay is quite easy to pick up. So in Kuala Lumpur, you've got the Indians, you've got the Malays, and you've got the Chinese. So the food's fantastic, and it's it's really cheap as well. So you meet loads of people, and you meet loads of people that were... Kuala Lumpur's one of them places where it was probably socially very, very good place, but the connections that you have with people are very short, because yeah. people are flying in there two or three days, and then they go. So they're in and out all the time, but that was great for me. I just wanted to meet loads of people and get loads of experiences, so I was talking to people about their travelling and seeing what they were up to and seeing all their experiences. And someone mentioned to me, it was quite a few people mentioned to me along my trip, was um, go to uh, Myanmar and Burma. This was 2017, 2018. I arrived in Yangon and... Uh, yeah, met a couple of friends uh, from America. They, they, I'd met them on the flight. We were the only foreigners on the flight. They said, do you want to lift to the hostel? So yeah, no problem. We were going to the exact same hostel. There was only like five hostels in uh, in Yangon at the time. Mm. And then I just, and, and I continued that traveling experience. But And then we went on a walk. We went on a trek all the way through um, Myanmar, a three-day trek to In the Lake. And, and the Burmese people, they put this, crazy face paint on which is a protection from the sun they, they make it from a have you, have you been to burma i've never no have you not no. oh the burmese people are really friendly yeah. really friendly you'll you'll be on a on a bicycle going through the towns and kids will run out and mingle bar mingle bar yeah you're saying hello yeah that sounds so sweet i've been a bit unfortunate that i came here july 2019 yeah, yeah. and the plan was to travel first four or five months i was just getting used to vietnam i went to bali for tech 2020 and then COVID happened where you've not been able to travel. So I've seen a lot of Vietnam, but not much of Asia. I'm hoping that that can be sorted. I hope in June. I think in June that's when things are starting to open again. And then hopefully I can go to places like Kuala Lumpur, etc. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that'd yeah. be ideal. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's, it's, I love Malaysia. I love the Malays and mm. you've got Chinatown, India. It, it's just, it's a, it's a really good day. Uh, and it's the skyscrapers. It's everything you'd want from a city. Everything's affordable. and. Yeah. And yeah, as I was cool. looking at your Instagram, which I spoke earlier, I saw Philippines, South mm. Korea. Have you seen most of Asia, would you say? Or So I, originally when I set off the first year I went backpacking, I set off and I wanted to do, um, I wanted to just, just, just travel and enjoy my life. After about six months, I thought, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I can't just keep traveling and meeting people. That was, that was really cool. How do I get, how do I challenge myself? How do we to become a better person so after uh, Myanmar I actually met this couple that had just been to Nepal and done the Everest base camp track and there was this girl and boy in this I can't remember the names now but we were just in a hostel and she was like go and do the trek in uh, Nepal and I was like I haven't got anything I haven't got anything with me I've got my flip-flops shorts and t-shirt I, I, and she said don't worry once you get to Nepal you can buy all your North Face stuff you can buy all your shoes, you can get it all kitted out and then you can do the trek, it's really, really easy. So I ended up flying from Burma, I went to uh, Burma, to Nepal, uh, got into Kathmandu. Have you been to Nepal? No, my dad has though, I believe. Ah, yeah. okay, yeah, okay. I've got a strange background where I've not left, I hadn't left Europe until Vietnam, but my dad goes to about 10, 15 countries a year. So he, I think he's been to 107 overall or something. Oh, wow. Insane. Cool. So my travel list is huge it's just yeah, actually yeah. executing but oh that's cool i've got 20 years or so he's 59 and still has the appetite so oh, nice. i'm following in good footsteps that's but good. he's he said good things about nepal it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah it's brilliant it's still uh it's very 
very rural, all the roads are rural and just the way the people are and you know, it's, it's, it's really cool. And one of the things about Nepal is everyone's challenging themselves. So you meet a lot of people that are going there with good intentions. People are going to do the treks and the treks are amazing, incredible. Yeah, do you mind yeah. telling me a bit more about what it was like? Was it physically demanding or mentally challenging? What was your experience? So, um, I've, so I met this, when I first got to the hostel, there was this uh, little German guy, he was only 19 at the time, and uh, he was. He said, um, don't get a guide for the Everest base camp trek, and I'm like, what do you mean, don't get a guide? He was like, you don't need one. He sat down, he was a really cool guy, he took me all the, all the way around Kathmandu, I was getting all my stuff, negotiating for all my prices and getting all my clothes that I needed and figuring out what I wanted. And he showed me a map and in on the base camp trip, you, you'll see if you ever do it, there's maybe 150,000 people that do it every year. The path is, if you if you go off the path, it's because you wanted to go off the path. It's so well worn, um, especially in the summer season. It's so well worn, you just follow the path and you can see loads of people. There's loads of people on the way. You may be walking with like 20 to 30 people at a time. It's very, very touristy. Everyone wants to do the Everest Base Camp Trek. And challenging, um, possibly, I possibly carried too much weight. I was carrying about 16 to 18 kilos because I haven't got that down. Challenging mentally, yeah. Um, also, you're turning up to the Base Camp Trek without a guide, which um, the locals don't really like that. They want to they wanna make sure that you, they're, they're wanting to keep their money into Nepal. A lot of people go through agencies, and um, the agencies pay the guides very little money. But still, even though they've went for an agency and they, they've got a guide, people want to. People want to. Um, they want you to be with a guide. So if you're not with a guide, they kind of, they kind of they know. So you get a group of people that aren't with guides, and then you formulate a group. And by that time, I wanted to. I wanted to. I got into a group and I started getting comfortable and I could either go left up to a place called Goiko Lake, this was about day seven, or I could go right, do the Everest Base Camp trip and then come back to um, Lukla. Lukla is the most dangerous airport in the, in the world. That's, yeah, when you, when you land, you, it, there's a ramp that you have to go down and then you come up and then the plane flies. I think that's the, that's the most dangerous airport in the world. And you were there? Yeah, well, a lot of people fly into Lukla, so there's two ways to get there. You can either fly in, or you can get a bus from Kathmandu, which is 20 hours, and then you've got to walk four days before you even get to the starting point of doing the trek. Right, so, okay. So, were you nervous about that at all, going through that, or...? Not really. You're flying through the Himalayas, you're in, like, this little tiny plane, and yeah. by the time I'd been to... Uh, they'd done the Vietnamese motorbike trip, and then went to Burma, and then by the time I come into Nepal, it was brilliant. You know, I started figuring out it, this was uh, month 11. I was planning to go home, uh, back back home to the UK and see everyone. Start figuring out who I was. You spend enough time mm. making your own decisions, start figuring out who you are. So we got into this group and there was, um, I could either split off left and go and see Goiko Lake, which is, is it Goiko Lake? I think it is, yeah. Goiko Lake, it's supposed to be the most beautiful part of the trek. Or I could go right and then go off on my own again. So I decided in the morning, right, I haven't got much time. It was going to be very time constrained. So I went right and then ended up going up to um, the Everest Bay Camp. And as I was going up there, there was this French um, French girl that, um, no, she, she, no, she was from a Scandinavian country. And she was, she was, she lived in the mountains in the French Alps. Right. Okay. And she was about 55, shredded, like not an ounce of fat on her. 
So the next morning we set off walking and uh, we go the long way. We wanted to see all the views on the way and it was the longest walk I'd ever done. Anything above 3,000 metres, you start getting altitude sickness. We end up going and I'm drinking all my water and I'm eating all my food faster than usual and my energy just kept zapping and zapping and zapping and I kept on trying to keep up with this this lady who was absolutely professional. Mm. And it got to one point where I sat down, I'd run out of all my water, I'd run out of all my chocolate, but I had no energy. It's a part of the altitude sickness. And um, yeah, she, she was like, I'm going to carry on to the sunset. And then I'll probably do the loop and then come back down and I'll, I'll meet you at the hotel we were staying at. We were staying with a really cool guy. Uh, it was a Tibetan guy that mm. had a hut there and some beds and stuff like that. So I end up uh, I end up lying on the I end up lying on this rock and trying to catch my breath. And it f almost felt, and I don't know whether it was psychological, but it almost felt like my lungs started filling up with fluid. And that's a that's a symptom of altitude sickness. Your lungs can you can you can actually drown yourself. Uh, with the with the altitude sickness, anything above three thousand meters, I reckon we were about four and a half thousand. And altitude sickness is a weird thing. It, it's kind of like a flu, but at the same time, you can't catch your breath. Um, you can't think straight. You can't sleep properly at night time. You have very very vivid dreams. It's it's a strange thing to to go through. And I was lying on the rock, and I pulled myself up and got my backpack. And I thought, I need to get down as fast as possible. Um, and, the, I mean, there's no way. Helicopters are coming all the time to lift people off the off the mountain. Yeah. And I stood up, and there was a porter. So in on the, on the Everest Base Camp Trek, you've got uh, porters who carry all the stuff for the tourists, and then you've got guides. The porters carry all the stuff up, and they get paid, paid per kilo. It's not very much money, but they're carrying. You see them with 130 kilos on the, on the head, and they'll have all the cans and beers and food and pizzas and all this all this crazy crazy stuff they're carrying up and then the the hotels sell it to all the tourists as you stay in there so you can get a pizza at Everest Base Camp. Jeez. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy. That it's, it's very, very touristy, you know. Yeah. Um so I seen this guy, he couldn't speak a word of Napoli uh, Napolese. I, I he couldn't speak a word of English and I pulled out some money. And I was at this point. I thought, if I don't get back soon, I've got about three hours before the sun goes down, and it gets very cold at night. I've got three hours to get down, and uh, if I don't get down, there's going to be a serious problem. So I give. He, he took my backpack off me, and give him some money. He carried the backpack, but he took me down this crit like old waterfall with no water in. As I was going down, I was getting more and more and more energy. I could, yeah, I felt like I was reviving myself as I was dropping. I dropped back down to about three thousand meters had as much food as I could, went to sleep. The next morning I woke up, I was still not the same for the rest of the trip. Even until I got back, I went all the way up to the base camp and then got back down, I still didn't feel the same. Right, okay. But you feel better than what you do when you're having the altitude sickness, but they say the, the best way to combat altitude sickness is to drop down. Right, okay. You think, we've mentioned the Vietnamese road trip and then this one in Nepal. Are there any other trips that maybe compare for you on the crazy scale, shall we say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's like uh, it's like that travel bug they call it. Mm. So after after Nepal and after making it back and getting to Lukla and being in the being in the hotel with all the people that had just completed that endorphins, I went back home and I started working for about six to seven months. Uh, I'd set up an electrical company and that was fun. You know, it's fun seeing all my family and friends, but. At, 
at one point I started thinking, okay, let's let's have another go at this. And I knew I wanted to do another year. Mm. And I, I, in Nepal, you meet so many people doing this trip. I met somebody who told me about Mongolia. So they, they spoke about 20 or 30% English, French. And uh, I can remember them saying, uh, Mongolia, uh, horses, eagles, and um, a van. And that's all it was, but the way they spoke about it, and it was very broken down. Mm. I didn't really know much about Mongolia. So my first, when I went back home, um, I knew I wanted to go to Mongolia. I didn't know much about it, didn't do any research at all. Flew in, <laughs> flew into Mongolia, got into the uh, got into the centre of Mongolia, which is, oh, I can't remember the name of it now. It's, I can't remember the capital's name at the minute. So basically, Mongolia is set up where it has three million people maybe about 80 to 90 percent of the people live in the capital and then the rest of them are nomadic it's a huge country and they have 30 million horses so what you do and realize this when you get to mongolia you rent a horse you go you you, you you so it's the only place that i've really wanted to get a guide so i end up in this hostel and uh, the next morning i'm sitting there and there's a guy called i'm still good very very good friend with uh, the two brothers there's a guy called Omri, and he comes up to me and he says, um, "Do you want to do it? Do you want to do a trip together?" Now, bearing in mind, this trip is 12 days driving every day in the van. You you driving every day in the van. You spend tw 10 to 12 hours in the van together. It's one of them Russian huge mm. huge vans. You both sitting at it, looking at each other. You staying in tents together. You getting meat along the way together. You it, you're basically putting yourself in a very very um, uncomfortable position so I said yeah he said my brother's coming over he's from New York so Omri's Israeli and so is his brother but his brother now lives in New York and, it, and I said yeah we'll, um, we'll we'll go for lunch I didn't want to commit to anything too fast we'll go for lunch we'll speak I don't want to be on the road with someone 12 days if there's got to be any friction you've got to be really careful you do and there was a lot of people that were coming formulating groups going forward and I was trying to work out what was going on so we stood at, stayed at a hostel the girl was absolutely brilliant uh, Golden Gobby uh, it was called and the girl was brilliant she said right this is the plan what we'll do is we'll get you a horse and um, she spoke perfect English we'll give you a guide we'll give you the driver and uh, we'll take food up everything will be everything you'll be able to survive basically so we went up and then as we set off me Omri were on the trip for about two hours and then we get a phone call and then they say a Korean guy's gonna come and we're like yeah brilliant so this guy Mr Kim came 70 years old couldn't speak a word of English bearing in mind this is the craziest experience I've ever had couldn't speak a word of English it emerged itself he had a six-pack every day he'd eat a raw onion and a raw bit of garlic every single day three times a day with some and then that was his secret that was his secret to keep him young so we spend four days, we go and see all these tribes. The tribes are brilliant. Well, not, not the tribes, the Mongols. They're brilliant. They run out and they'll make you bread and, and yak milk tea and, and bit of meat. And wherever you go, you can always, they always run out. It's the same food all over, all over Mongolia. And you go in, you have tea, you see the families, you see how they're living. They're living in these girls. It's like a big circular tent. And uh, day four... We get there, and Omri. The reason why Omri wanted to go to Mongolia, Golia, um, was because he watched. Uh, he, he was really into horses, so he brought his brother along. And I don't think Mr. Kim knew knew what was going on. He was in the same mindset as me. 
we end up, we end up uh, there's 30 million horses, so we get up in the morning with wild horses running around everywhere. And then we had two horse guides that were going to take us to see the reindeer tribes. So I said, listen, I, I mean, I've been on a horse before, but like these horses, they're not the biggest horses, but they can, they can walk and run and do everything else. Right, and yeah. Pretty intense. They're muscly, they're shredded. And uh, I said, right, give me a calm horse. So Omri gets on this, the biggest horse there. He gets on, he starts running around everywhere and controlling it, like he's driving a car almost. And Mr. Kim gets on, and he's got a, he's got a lead to the horse guide, so there's nothing crazy. And then I say, right, okay, and I've got the um, the um, guide. She's only 21 year old. She lived she lived in one of these gears, and her job was to run around and uh, get all the cattle and the sheep at night time and herd them back in. So she was very good on the horse. So she's like, okay, these are the only things you need to know for the horse. Choo choo means go, high means stop. So I'm like, choo-choo, hi, 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 okay. I can deal with, I don't really want to do choo-choo, but I'm, I'm good with hi. So I jump on this horse, the first thing it starts doing is running like crazy, <laughs> running like crazy. I'm grabbing hold of the rein, and the saddle at the time is coming up, and it's got this little hook on it, and you're grabbing onto the saddle, and I'm shouting hi as many times as possible. That horse had never heard hi before. <laughs> before no. You're just giving like hey, words. Hi, hi. Yeah, well, you had to, I had to tire it out. So we went on the four-day trek, and the the terrain out there is insane. You're basically going through swamps, and you're going down mountains. And my horse was very, um, it was very nervous, and I could tell it was nervous. It just wanted to gallop all the time. So what I had to do is I learned like very very quickly put it behind another horse so it feels like it it doesn't feel like it's um mm. too nervous you know and these horses are mental they, these yeah. horses are crazy you'd meet people on horses like the horse guides and they would literally have to um, be pulling one side of the horse and spinning it round all the time so he couldn't gallop all they wanted to do was run you know these horses aren't really trained they, yeah. they're not they don't put blankets on them at night time you know, you're sleeping by a river in a makeshift tent, making a fire, having some food, and the horses are just tied up and standing next to you. They're a, they're a di it's a different, uh, different way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're sure. probably wild. They've probably been broke in for about a year ago, and then they give them to tourists. Yeah. And then how would you sum up your overall impression of that trip? Was it, what words would you use? Would you use chaotic or memorable? Or overall, was it fun? Ah, oh, very fun to see the reindeer tribes and to see people that are living off reindeers. You first get into the reindeer camp and there's there's like 20 dogs, like really, really big dogs. And you can tell the horses are really nervous walking into the camp. They're walking slower. They're walking in a pact. And you stay there. And uh, I said to Garner, the, uh, the guide, I said, why, why is there so many dogs? And she said, oh, don't worry. Uh, they're just to keep the wolves out at night time. We were sleeping in tents. And packs of wolves come in to attack the reindeers at night and they have the dogs, domesticated dogs, that were keeping the, the wolves away and protecting the territory. So that trip, that's, that's only one part of the trip. You fly over to the west and they do a completely different thing. It's where they've, they've basically trained a baby eagle how to hunt for them. So you go on a horse, go up to the top of the mountain, they'll send the baby eagle out, the eagle will dive bomb, 200 kilometers per hour take out wolves rabbits foxes and then that's how they eat Jesus. yeah it's, it's insane so you drive you're going up the mountain with this eagle on some guy's arm and then he's looking with binoculars and then he'll send it out and then it'll catch catch whatever and then then, then they all ride down and that's how they eat yeah 
Jeez, man. These all sound staggering. Like, yeah. I'm thinking of my own travel journey that what I've got in order, and it sounds like you should expect the unexpected. You yeah. should prepare to be unprepared. Would you say that's correct? That's what, yeah. After the first six months, my first trip, and after that, it got to the point where if a bus was late, if a plane was late, if I missed a flight, which I'd done, if the restaurant didn't have a cup of coffee and you wanted it, you, you got to the point where it was just like, I don't know what Zen is, but you were just kind of at peace with, it doesn't really matter. Mm. If the boat's two hours late or we've missed the boat and you need to stop and stay in a, a hostel or a hotel for the night and it doesn't matter. What matters the most is the people around you. That's that's what matters the most because you've got no phone. You've, you, it doesn't matter how much money someone has. It doesn't matter what kind of car. that you do. None of that matters. No possessions matter. What matters is who you are in that moment where... You know, you, you're going through all this adversity, and that's what I really liked about it. You get to know people, even even short, you'll know from your own travelling experiences. Yeah. You, you meet people for four or five days, but you do so much cool stuff in between, yeah. where it's like six months back home. Yeah, it's a different game. And we mentioned at the start, or I think halfway through, that you figured out more about yourself from this mm. travelling. Can I ask you what that was? How? What did you figure out about yourself? Oh, from travelling? It, well, what did I learn? Uh, definitely socially. I learned uh, socially uh, a lot more. Uh, you're dealing with different characters all the time, assessing situations more. Uh, what did I figure out? I figured out that uh, life's very, 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 very short and you need to maximise. I think I read somewhere in the... I, I seen a meme or something a long time ago and it said... The average lifespan in the UK is about 70 years old and you break it down and that's only 26,500 days. And then I watched this YouTube documentary where the guy, have you seen the jelly bean? Where the guy oh, gets no. a jelly bean and he, and he, he, he has 26,500 jelly beans for the average life and he says, okay, this is how much time you take. Uh, you spend on the toilet. This is how much time you spend in the shower. This is how much time you spend at school. And he's removing the jelly beans all the time. And this is what you do, and you travel, and you commute, and everything. And by the end of it, you've got, you've got, like a fraction of the jelly beans left, and it puts it into perspective of how you should enjoy every day. Yeah, for sure. I'm thinking of the Western mentality where if the bus is late or mm. if someone lets you down, you ruminate on it for hours and hours. Yeah, yeah. Yet perhaps this travel experience takes you, takes you out of that comfort zone almost, and puts you in a different environment and thinks, how are you going to thrive now? Yeah. And it really does put you to the test. And it seems like you benefited a lot from that result. Yeah. Yeah. I said at the start, like uh, Joe Rogan, I listen to a lot of his stuff. And one of the things that he goes on about a lot is that people need to struggle in the sense of they need to put themselves through adversity and they need to seek challenges and they need to get out of the comfort zone, whether it's going to the gym and doing an hour workout, whether it's sitting in the sauna for 30 minutes, whether it's having a nice bath like uh, the Wim Hof yes. stuff. You know, people, if you don't do that and you get comfortable, that's when mental health and sadness and when you're constantly pushing yourself through them barriers. Yeah, big time. You know, you put you feel confident. And this is one of the things about um, jiu-jitsu and martial arts. Not only that, you become very, very close to the people that you're training with very quickly, but and you, you create real, real friendships. But, you know, it's, it, 
also challenges you when somebody's trying to snap your arm and then you've got to tap or you, and you're playing that game of chess but at the same time it's it's very fun and it's very playful but if you've got someone that's wrapped around your neck and they're trying to squeeze your juggler until you either pass out or tap i mean that's a like a kind of close to even though you know the guy's gonna let go it's kind of a life and death situation yeah. and you kind of it really it really has it, it's a life-changing experience how have you have you trained jiu-jitsu for a while because you mentioned that in malaysia which was a few years ago has this been a process over a period of time of uh, training jiu-jitsu uh, i started when i was 21 i went to a gym when i was 21 and uh, when uh, my grandma died and my whole life flipped upside down, I, I knew I was sitting in my house at night time and I was thinking, I need to do something. I need to I need to get involved with some experience or you figure out a different way. I was going to work and then I had childhood friends which were absolutely brilliant, but I just knew I needed to get into a hobby. I had no hobbies. I didn't keep fit. I didn't... You, there was nothing, like, really driving me. And then I wanted to do... MMA was big at the time, uh, mixed martial arts broke onto the scene, I started watching the uh, mixed martial arts stuff, and I thought, right, I'm going to go and do MMA, uh, I went down to the local sports centre, it closed there, and then I found a place called Hokushinko, um, really, really, really good gym, really good gym, the guys that run it, still very, very good friends with them, they actually were a reason why I started the initial travelling, and got my brain thinking differently, and seeing people and walking friends out and they were competing and you know it was like it was a real a real tight bond that i'd never had there was mm. a guy there who was in the army um quite high up position in the army and he said it was basically like it's like a civilian with civilians you never he never really got that bond until he started going to the gym because you, you know you there's a guy there's a guy training to have a have a like, combat situation yeah. and you're walking them out and you're praying and your hands are sweating even though you're not fighting you're thinking this guy you've helped him for like 12 weeks or 10 weeks and you're doing them shark tank rounds and he's out there and his whole family's watching you know what it means to him and he wins and you just it's just a relief you know yeah, and yeah it is it's a relief for them or if he loses at the same time it's you devastate the whole team's distraught Right, yeah. I see. Yeah, I'm looking at the mindset of it. And you train here in Saigon. Uh, I think Ridley told me, shout out to Ridley, there was yeah. Jaboa, uh, if that's how it's pronounced. How's that experience of a Jaboa? Uh, well, I don't train that. I train at a place called Shark Jiu Jitsu. It's uh, run by the Koreans. Very good. Very good. Um, the, the the Korean guy that runs it, is, uh, he's got um, he's come from a Taekwondo background. Um, there's, the Korean community in Saigon is really big. Yeah, I wasn't actually aware of that. Yeah, well, yeah. District 7, it's uh, it's really, really big. So they've got gyms popping up everywhere, and they're very friendly. The guy that runs um, Shark Jiu-Jitsu, uh, Team Shark, he's he lets you train wherever you want. He just wants people to grow and people to enjoy it, you know. And yeah, sure. I go there every morning. I yeah, go and nice train one. there every morning. Yeah. And uh, well, How early are we talking? Uh, it's about 8 o'clock, That's okay. 8 o'clock in the morning. Sweet, yeah. yeah. That's more than the average person, I'd say, in Saigon. Yeah, yeah. training at that time. And let's, I suppose, talk about Vietnam as a whole, because we've talked about this road trip, and then I know you spent the last two years living here. Mm. Why did you decide then to live back in Vietnam? Oh, I met a girl from South Africa. Yeah, I came over, I was living in District 7. I came from, I came from, um, 
Burma back to Saigon. Uh, wanted to train at the gym, District District Seven, uh, Saigon Sports Club. I'd seen a lot of stuff online. I'd actually met a guy in um, Taiwan and he t and met him again in Burma and he told me about Saigon Sports Club. I was travelling with a friend for six months from back in the UK. That was a really cool experience, and. Um, we, he ended up, uh, I went to India for six weeks in India and then he ended up uh, joining Saigon Sports Club. Do you know much about Saigon Sports Club? A little bit, I've heard some very good reviews. Well, it's, it's, it's insane. Uh, the, the, the facilities, they have CrossFit, we, we were doing Muay Thai at the time, the, the weight facilities, um, it, just, just, it's just an insane gym. They have saunas, steam rooms, they get, they get we, we met a... Uh, um, a few guys that fought in the UFC that were just passing through, and um, it was a really cool experience. So I ended up uh, coming for three months, a total of three months, and then after the first week, I met a girl from South Africa who was like, "Come to Tardien." So I went to meet her at Tardien, and uh, this opened my eyes up, and I was like, "Why is there so many expats here? What's happened?" You know, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> with the experience in Tardien with the restaurants and the bars and the culture. And then I ended up moving over to Bintan and uh, moved in after about a month because my lifestyle at the time was very temporary. Like I was into a, I was in the country for a month, and then after a month, the friendships are formed. You still keep in touch with people, but you meet so many people you don't know. So I was, I'd really like this girl. I knew that if I moved on too quickly, that it probably wasn't going to work out. So I kept on pushing it mm -hmm. another month and another month, and then. I just knew I wanted to be with her, and that was two and a half years ago. So we ended up, um, I, you know, like yeah, I ended up staying in Saigon. Yeah, awesome. Man. And yeah. how have you found it then? The last two years. I know that you're leaving on Friday. How would you sum up the two-year experience then of Saigon? Saigon's uh, insane. It's, it's it's yeah, it's a wonderful country. Wonderful country. It's crazy. It's a crazy country. Uh, there's a lot of um, no rules for a lot of things. Uh, like we were saying earlier, you can go down as many different paths as you want. You can go, you can do yoga, you can do jujitsu, you can eat healthy food. On the same time, you can go to the party scene, you can drink alcohol, you can go to all the bars. There's always live music on. You know, you, you can. It's a country full of opportunity. Yeah. You know, um, you're on what two hundred and seventy-eight. Two hundred and seventy-eight, yeah, and at least half, if not more, are from Saigon itself. Yeah. So I just realised in January when I began wow, the amount of people I can get from here. For example, like we know Ridley, who introduced us, mm. and I'd go to a bar, and I'd meet someone, we'd get chatting, connect, come on the podcast. Brilliant. I did a presentation recently where I, I looked back at the evolution of Comeback, and I realised so many times the weird ways I'd meet guests, whether it be at a bar or a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend or of Brilliant. a colleague, and it just hit me how good Saigon is for that connection and opportunity, mm. if you allow it to. Yeah, and that's the key if you allow it. So yeah, that's it, and it, it, it takes a lot of self control as well. Like you've got to make sure that you're getting up in the morning, you're going to the gym, you, you you're doing your work during the day. You know, there's so much opportunity out here, and as an expat, there's so many, so many people that come out here, and you make you make money, and you, you, they enjoy the lifestyle, and it gives them the opportunity to learn a skill or do a course or get into some sort of different avenue i mean with your podcast and yeah sure you know it's it's really cool yeah. and the wi-fi is fantastic so you can work wherever you want even off your phone you can hotspot it yeah for sure yeah yeah we did that outside the shop one time do you remember ah you did yeah, yeah you helped yeah. me out yeah i didn't know how to do hotspot though and you told me i went oh, okay sure. yeah, yeah yeah so i was trying to get money out of my bank but my yeah. card was locked 
and yeah, uh, yeah. so I always lock my card. There's a yeah, so I always keep it thing, and now I didn't have any internet. Yeah. on my phone or, and it wouldn't let me connect to the GS25 and I had to pay the guy I was getting something delivered I can't yeah, remember I what so, yeah. I think he was delivering some um, some oh it was love. a headset maybe no it was oh, some okay. uh, Muay Thai shin guards oh okay from okay. Uh, Saigon Boxing yeah. Right, yeah it's brilliant I woke up in the morning I thought right I'm going to go and do uh, Muay Thai at about 8 o'clock in the morning this is how cool Saigon is so I messaged Saigon Boxing they get back with me in 5 minutes I'm like right my training sessions are Half past ten. Is there any chance I can order the my uh, the shin guards, get them delivered before ten o'clock? Yep, no problem. Send them on a grab. I met you outside the GS twenty five. Yeah. I'm trying to pay the guy. I've got the Muay Thai shin guards. I get on my bike. I go training. You know, this is yeah. how cool the city is. That's like gun, man. Yeah. And then traveling as a whole, then, what are some key tips you'd give away to anybody listening who is thinking of traveling? I know that's quite broad. Perhaps by themselves. Perhaps completely out of their comfort zone. Based on your experience, what advice would you give them? Uh, advice, uh, advice from a safety aspect. Just be wary and just trust your instincts. Uh, there's some shady situations that happen when you're traveling, but at the same time, it's not all that bad. What 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 happens when you when you start traveling is you meet so many good people along the way, and so little percentage of bad people that you understand that life's not all too bad. I think couchsurfing was set up initially. Oh, no, Airbnb. Airbnb was set up initially so people could connect and then people realised they could make money out of it and it became this business thing. So strangers aren't too bad. You've got to be wary and you've got to, you know, you've got to keep your own counsel and make sure everything's okay. But the advice I'd give to them was just, you know, don't worry too much. But, yeah, just enjoy it. Enjoy it. I really hope um, we can get back to that point where you don't have to quarantine, you don't have to do the tests. and Yeah, it, massively. Yeah. And is there one place for you that's still on your bucket list that you really desire? But I haven't done any of South America right, at okay. all. So ideally, I'd like to see a lot of South America. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, my mindset's changed a little bit now where I want to I wanna live in a country and set up a base um, until everything dies down with the with the COVID thing until it's all back to normal. But I, I really want to do South America. There's a trek through the Amazon rainforest that I'd like to do. I'd like to just see a little bit of Peru. I'd like to learn Spanish while, because with Asia, you're leaving the country. So you leave Thailand, Thai doesn't work anymore. You leave Vietnam to Cambodia, Cambodia, you know, you, every every country, you go to Korea, you, yeah. you're trying to learn a new language. Whereas in South America, Spain, 12 months and you don't have to learn the new phrases you don't have to know how to say can i get a taxi yeah sure yeah and i guess final question simon before we wrap up what's next you're obviously going back to the uk on friday what would you like to achieve then going forward perhaps professionally or to do with travel what's next for you uh professionally i've got quite a bit of work to do when i get back um i've got to see my i'd like to see my family i'd like to spend some time i've just got uh, my brother's just had a baby uh, my godfather, I'd like to spend some time with my niece. I'd like to see my grandma and just just spend quality time with with family, you know. Yeah. I think one of the situations what I've learnt while I've been away is you've gotta you've gotta make the most of friends and family when you get back. And I really wanna get as in a, as best shape as I can. So when I go back home my purpose is to try and do as work out as much as I can. I've got a really good gym there, the the gym I said before, Hokashinko, they've got a really good um, 
martial arts thing going on. They've got boxing. They've got jujitsu. They've also got um, Muay Thai. And they've got a strength and conditioning. It's strength and conditioning training where they're doing powerlifting, which is good, which is something I haven't really dived into much. And also, it'd be nice to set up a van and work a little bit and just spend time with everyone. That's that's the main thing. Yeah. And Excellent. hopefully not get too cold. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Any final thoughts before we wrap up? No, no, that's it. That's all good. Is Excellent. there anything? Uh, well, I'm just going to say that I've really enjoyed this. I yeah. think it's a great insight into traveling from different areas, Vietnam, Nepal, Malaysia, etc. And I've really enjoyed the chat. I'm glad that we got the opportunity to connect before you went home. Thanks very much and all the best for your future endeavors. Thank you.